It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. A neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful rainy day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please? Won't you be my neighbor? Good morning, neighbors. Good morning, neighbors. I know some of you are probably thinking, we're never going to give him four weeks not preaching again if this is what happens. <laughs> is this what happens when we leave him alone like that? And the answer is absolutely not. This is what happens when months ahead we plan a series, a new series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And over the summer I get the opportunity to read an amazing book called The Good Neighbor, a biography of Fred Rogers by Maxwell King and began to look and think, well, this would be a lot of fun. How many of you are familiar with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? How many of you wanted to sing along but were a little nervous? Okay, great. You see, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and you're thinking, what happened to my pastor? Um, if I could be like Mr. Rogers, I would do it. Go read his biography. It's outstanding. And he actually ran and uh, designed and did everything for a public television show that ran from about 1968 to 2001. And I have been, needless to say, watching episodes all summer long and trying to figure out what made this man so different. What allowed him to last on air this long and that everyone tried to figure out who he was? Was he really the same person behind the screen as he was uh, when you met him on the street or while he was having dinner with his wife and kids? And the answer was always yes. And I'll tell you, I, I didn't even make a dent in the over 900 episodes that he filmed. But something happened with each episode that as he came in and welcomed people, asking them the same exact question every time. Won't you be my neighbor? It was an invitation to millions of kids over decades to say, you're welcome in my home. You're welcome to be here. And, and as I've watched it, I'll be honest, I, I felt like I know he's no longer alive, but Mr. Rogers wants to hang out with me and is inviting me into his television home to feed his fish with him. What is it that seems so sincere? Why do I feel welcome in his home? You know, I, I find it interesting and really awesome that this is the week we welcome our sixth graders to church. We welcome them not just to like, like church, because you've always been a part of Crossbridge, but now you're a part of Crossbridge, right? 
you hit CB Youth, you're with us. And I want to especially, as the main teacher who's up here on Sundays, I want to invite you and just say, uh, you have a place here with us. And I'm so glad that you're here. I really am. It means the world to me that our sixth graders, we do not see you guys as you've moved up as like, okay, how do we just endure them or how do they endure me? You know, I'll tell you, my goal, I'll be very honest with you if you're in sixth grade, let me, my goal for you is I want to make the Bible come alive for you because it is my favorite thing in the world. There's nothing more exciting or, or transforming in my life than the word of God. And I'm going to do everything that I can to not sugarcoat what's in there while some people may try to make it nice and pretty and easy. I don't think it's always easy. And so I'm going to make a deal with you. I won't hide anything that the Bible says from you because some of it's tough and some of it is so life-giving. But I want you to trust what's in here is the word of God. I also want you to feel free to come up to me and be like, Pastor Jimmy, that was a bomb. I'm okay with that because I need to make sure that you want to be here too you understand what's going on. So if there's things that you think could be better in a message or want to know, like, hey, I have questions about that. My parents say, stop asking questions. Great. Come and talk to me. I would love that. I would love that. Your opinion is important. Your values in this church. So can I just say welcome to the table? Welcome to church. I'm excited. And it almost feels right to dress up like Mr. Rogers to invite you to do that today. Like the cardigan is really much hotter than I thought it was going to be. Um, it's funny, as I've watched this show, I've seen that Mr. Rogers has these conversations with people over and over and over, and, and, and I wonder how he can leave so much time for space in his sentences and in the show. Like, he's allowing people, especially kids, to process, and they have always, there's this, you hear story after story about people opening up and, and telling Mr. Rogers their story, and it really is, he's done nothing but ask questions of them. When he looked at anyone, I mean, absolutely anyone, whether it was on the show or off the show, and he said something like, it's you I like, people believed him. They genuinely believed him. And, and what I find amazing is that the question that Mr. Rogers asks every single episode with, won't you be my neighbor, sounds eerily similar to a question that Jesus was asked over 2,000 years ago. Mr. Rogers asked millions of people, won't you be my neighbor? And 2,000 years ago, the expert in the Jewish law asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? They're so similar, but they're amazingly different at the same time, aren't they? You see, one is invitational. Can we walk through life together? The other is basically a clarification. Who do I have to walk with? Who needs to come into my home? What are the parameters I can set to say you're welcome and you are not? The good news that I have for us this morning is this. Jesus answers both of those questions. Jesus answers the question, won't you be my neighbor? And he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And we'll get a great look at that in the uh, story that Sharon read for us from Dr. Luke. He wrote in the biography of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there with me. And just so we can get an idea of what is going on in this story. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot more details in this story than in other stories about Jesus. And when he tells a story, there's a lot more details in it. But before we get to this good Samaritan story that we're all familiar with, 
that many of us have heard, even Seinfeld, you know, ended on, on that story because it was a horrible closing, but we'll let it go. <laughs> what's interesting in this passage in verse 25 to such a familiar story is what sets it up. In verse 25, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, an expert in the religious law, this happened all the time that these experts in the church, these people who dedicated themselves to the study of the scriptures would come to Jesus, and as they came to him, they would almost always try to get him in trouble. They were trying to um, tempt him or to trip him up. This tells us that this expert is trying to test him. It, and I will tell you, this whole interaction feels a little bit different than the other ones. So don't necessarily take this guy and make him a villain right off the bat. I think he's actually going to be curious, and we'll see why in a second. But he starts out with making it very personal. He says, what should I do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'll be honest, I think this is natural for people to think whether you're an expert in the law or not. I think every single one of us, if we really admit it, has wondered, what in the world happens after I die? What's going to happen when I take my last breath and, and every kid asks that question, and his parents were the worst, as adults were the worst, because we try to be like, uh, we, we get all uneasy about this question often because we're not completely certain, and we're asking the same exact question this expert is. How can I be certain that I have eternal life when I breathe my last breath? Has anybody else ever thought that besides me? Okay, some of you are telling the truth. The rest of you, you're liars. That's, that's going to keep you away, Okay. Don't lie. Listen, we've all asked this. It's a natural question to wonder about eternity. And the expert is like, okay, this is it. If something has to happen, how do I secure what I want? The question itself is actually a bit of a contradiction. If you think about it, what do I do to inherit? You don't do anything to inherit something. When you inherit something, it is given to you. It is not anything you do to earn that inheritance. Does that make sense? It's a weird question. What do I do to inherit? So he's already got a little bit of a, a, a personal idea of, if I'm going to get into heaven here. If I'm going to get this eternal life, I have to do something. But nonetheless, the man asks the question we're all asking. And Jesus, thankfully, he answers in verse 26, and he, he says, okay, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? My favorite thing about Jesus, he answers one question with two questions. He does not give the expert an answer. He asks him two questions, and he starts with the law of Moses. Remember, this man is an expert in the law, so he's not trying to trick him. He's not trying to trip him up. He's not trying to do anything here other than say, okay, you know the law. You know the first five books of the Bible inside and out. What does that tell you? Right? He's starting with, what do we have in common here? How do we do this? And then his second question is, and how do you read it? How do you read it? The man started personal. How do I inherit? And Jesus doesn't just give him an answer and say, here's what the Bible says, done. He says, you know what's in there. How do you interpret it? Again, he's not trying to trip him up. He's giving him an invitation to answer this question. And, and what I like about this is Jesus is kind of tossing a softball question up there because every Jewish uh, citizen would have known the right answers to this. They would have understood it. He's not asking, what does the whole community think, though? He's saying, expert, what do you think? And so the man answers in verse 27. He says, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And, and you know, there it is. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. In, in verse 27, the expert answers very clearly the answer to inherit eternal life is love. I need to love God and love my neighbor. These are two passages that are pulled out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 19. Every single citizen knew them. This was the common answer. This is the equivalent of like in Sunday school, if they ask you a question, what's the answer? Yes, you know it. Good. Some of you, it's like maybe if you've grown up in Crossbridge, you're like, what's Sunday school? That's it. CB Kids, you know, like it's, it's where we start to try to learn about who Jesus is. And we try to, it's like Jesus is the answer to everything. And that's a really weird statement, okay? Um, but we know it. It's the Sunday school answer that we joke about. Loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself was the synagogue answer for every Jewish person. They knew this. It was a safe answer for this man, but I think it's really genuine. I, I do. Because Jesus responds. He's like, man, you have answered correctly. You have answered correctly. He replies, do this and you'll live. I don't know how often you read the biographies of Jesus, but when teachers of the law confront him on something and then Jesus asks a clarifying question, they usually don't know what to say or do. And so Jesus is like, all right, well, if you don't answer, I don't answer. Sorry. This time, Jesus looks at this expert and he's like, nailed it. You, you got it. You are correct. And he affirms his answer. And then he says, you know what? That's great. Now live it out. The way that he says this, is it's more like, okay, it's not just do this and you will live. It's keep on doing this forever. This calling that, that you know to inherit eternal life, to love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself is not a I've done it, check the box. I've done the thing to inherit eternal life. But it's am I doing and living this type of life? It's not a one-time interaction. It's a lifelong commitment. Now, what's funny is I think we all know the right answer a lot of times. This isn't usually the problem that we have in life, is it? It's putting it into practice where we have a problem. We know the right answer in so many ways, what to eat, what to do, when to exercise, all of those things, yet do we do them? No, it's harder to put it into practice and we begin to trip up when it comes to actually living things out, which is exactly what the expert in the law was like, ah, keep living this out. So he says, okay, but in verse 29, he says, but he wanted to, what's that word he says there? But he wanted to, okay, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is he? Come on. His second question is a justification question. His second question is trying to make sure that he can create a boundary to who he loves and who he doesn't. It's to justify, to say, the life that I'm living now is comfortable for me. And so I'd like to justify to make sure that there's excuses out there to just keep loving the people I'm with. This will be fine. He asks, who? Who's my neighbor? This is a, a, a lawyer's trick, a debater's trick, where they basically can, if, if we can then debate on the definition of a term of who a neighbor is, then I can kind of wiggle around something, right? I can work around what I know this says and technically just do what I want to do, 
If I define it different, I can find a way out of doing the hard things. And instead of answering the question, who? Jesus doesn't answer who. Instead, he goes into the story of the Good Samaritan that Sharon read, which talks about how. Jesus never answers the who. He answers the how. Do you be a neighbor? And in verses 30 to 37, um, we have a story that many of us are familiar with. And this layering of this story, like I said, there's so many details to it. I don't want to necessarily read it again because it's, it's such a good story on its own. But instead, I want to look at the cast of characters that Jesus has listed. And then in the context and the culture that, that Jesus is in, why was this story so important to answer the how instead of the who of is my neighbor? And the first thing that you, you read about in verse 30 is with this story that there's a Jewish man who's going to be traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, you know, we read of the NLT together, the word Jewish isn't there, but most people make the assumption that it is a Jewish person because Jesus mentions he starts in Jerusalem. So that's his starting point, is the center city of Israel, and they're all excited, right? Okay, this is near, like, this is our type of person. There's a guy who's traveling. It's something that every listener from the expert in every person surrounding would have went, been there. I've traveled that road. I know this. This is normal. Until the guy gets jumped, right? They didn't show that on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That was on, like, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood, okay? If you missed that, it's an SNL skit. You can just go look it up. Eddie Murphy's great. See, I went deep dive on, Eddie, uh, on Mr. Rogers. Sorry. But this Jewish man gets jumped. And he gets, like, stripped naked, beaten half to death, and he's bleeding out on the side of the road. Every single person listening would have went, oh, no. Oh, no. What are we going to do? And, and in verse 31, we find that a priest comes along. By chance, a priest comes along, the verse tells us. And what does the priest do? It says, but when he sees him laying there, so he, he does see the man, and instead, obviously, we see that it's in, this man is going to be in front of him because it, this verse tells us that he crosses to the other side. So he avoids the man, and then he passes him by. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not going to throw deep shade at this priest because you have to understand there's certain laws that he has to abide by, that he can't touch dead things, he can't, you know, be around. It, like, so if it looked like this guy was remotely dead, he would have been possibly sacrificing the ability to do his job. I mean, if he's a traveling priest, he's got to get to Jericho, and, and he may have some responsibilities there, and he doesn't want to remove himself from the responsibilities that he has. I mean, his job is to love people when they're coming to the temple. When they're coming to the synagogue, this is his job. So if he touches and he helps this dead guy, he can't do his job. He's going to have to be quarantined for a little while due to the law. So it, it makes sense that he crosses, right? Can you see that? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a decent excuse. It would make sense to me. So maybe his love for more people meant he didn't have to love this man so that he can love greater when he gets to the city. You, you know what? Maybe, maybe a temple assistant will come by, and the priest who normally passes things off to the assistant, he'll take care of that because that's what he should do. Well, the good news is, in Jesus' story, a temple assistant comes, 
A temple assistant comes by, but he's on the opposite side that the priest was on. And when we read in verse 32 that his job is to help the priests, uh, you know, facilitate what's happening in their synagogue, he actually walks over to the man. He looks at him and he's like, (laughs) and he passes by on the other side. He leaves and goes the other way. He looked at the car crash with the people scattered all over and went, I, I, I can't stop to, to help, but I can stop to look. And, and you know what? I got I to stop to look and I can't stop to help because the life of an assistant in the temple is way busier than the life of the priest. I mean, they dump everything on me. My job's way harder than theirs is, so I have all these extra things. I have to get there or the work won't get done and the priest can't get his stuff done. So my job is, just takes up all my life. I'm so busy. I don't have time to love this guy right now because I'm going to help love a lot of people at church, at synagogue. And so he passes by. I mean, it seems like a valid excuse if you're busy, isn't it? You don't like that I said that, did you? You already know because Jesus doesn't make this complicated where this goes. You see, the Samaritan comes along in verse 33. And the New Living Translation inserts the word despised before the word Samaritan here because it's giving us some context of what it says later on down that they don't get along. Um, What you should understand if you're unfamiliar with the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was the, the Samaria was a region right kind of in the center area of Israel. And all of the Jews would actually consciously avoid these people. They saw them as like half-breeds and they were racist about them and said like, you do not belong with us, you are other than. And they would travel out like two or three days out of the way so they wouldn't even have to walk through the region. That's how much they hated them. Okay, they would go out of their way to avoid them. And so now when this story comes through and Jesus, I think he's kind of playing to the crowd a little bit. It's a bunch of Jewish people listening and he's like, and then a despised Samaritan came along. I have to imagine that everybody who's there is like, yeah, I hope he gets jumped too. Stupid Samaritans. Like they're the worst. They're the worst. It should have been that guy on the side of the road, not this Jewish traveler. Like no way. But what does this despised Samaritan do? We see so quickly in verse 33 and following that he he sees this man on the side of the road. He felt compassion for him. He went over to him. He soothed him. He touched him. He bandaged him. He, He put him as a labor to grabbing him in his bloody mess on his own donkey to walk back into town despised in the town of Jerusalem where he would have been, and he covers his bills that night to make sure he's covered. And then the next morning, he goes to the owner who he's familiar with, obviously, and says, here's even more just in case he needs it. And he promises to pay more even if that's not enough. Can I just tell you, I don't think any of this would have gone over well with the crowd that's listening. This is not the way the story is supposed to end. The despised Samaritan cannot be the hero of this story. And and I wonder if Jesus pauses after he explains what the Samaritan does just to let it sink in, to let it linger with this group that like, guess what? What do you think is going to happen to this character? What do you hope happens to him? 
And he doesn't necessarily finish it. He just leaves it there. And this is the moment when Jesus turns back to the expert after saying this story to everyone. He turns to the expert, and now Jesus asks his second question, even though he asked two in the beginning. It was kind of like one response. His second response and question in verse 36 is now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus now asks who? Which of the three? Was it, was it the priest? Was it the assistant? Was it the, the despised Samaritan? Can you feel the tension in the air for this group listening? Can you feel how frustrating this would have been for them? Have you ever had someone ask you a question you didn't want to answer? You knew the answer to it, and you knew saying the answer and admitting it would kind of show that you were wrong or reveal something about you you didn't want? I hate when that happens. That's a good moment to amen if you've been in that moment. Have you ever been there? Okay, good. I think this is where they are. I think the expert in the law is like, I hate your story. I hate this. I have to answer. And... and, in verse 37, it says, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus replies, yes, now go and do the same. Isn't it funny that this Jewish expert, this expert in the law that I think has a great question for Jesus, and Jesus says, your answer to this is right. And then when he asks for technically, what does it mean? He doesn't like the response that he gets, and so he's so frustrated, he will not even use the word Samaritan to answer the who that Jesus is asking. That's how much he hates these people. There's so much, he won't even say, I'll give the character in this some credit. I'm not doing that to those people. No way. And what's amazing to me, though, is in his answering of the who, he answered the how. Who? The one who showed what? The one who showed mercy. The one who showed love. The one who who actually did something. And Jesus' response is, great, go do it. Go do it. Dr. Luke never tells us how the expert in the law responds. And I am frustrated for such a great biographer and writer that he does not tell us what this expert does. And as I have thought about this over and over, it's really frustrating to me. Like, I want to know his response. And then I can thank God for the gift that Dr. Luke gave me in an open-ended story to say, that's great, don't worry about what the expert's going to do, Jimmy. Are you going to do it? Will you invite people to be your neighbor? Will you love them? Go and do it. Go. Be the neighbor. I, I, I do think that there's a tension that you and I carry in the 21st century with this passage, and it's largely around, like the expert, if you have chosen to follow Jesus with your life, we have made following Jesus so individualistic that he is your personal savior, and he's here to help you through all things, and we have forgot the call to humanity to go and share the gospel of Christ. And so we have tried all that we can to personalize Jesus as our homeboy and friend that we forget he is the Savior and came for all of the world. That yes, we will affirm he has died for your sin. 
with you in mind, but not just you, but the person sitting next to you and the person living next to you and the person living completely opposite on the other side of the world that you will never know. He died for them. But as long as we keep things personal, love is a lot easier, isn't it? As long as we keep this about what makes me comfortable. Can I just tell you, I, I, I think it's time to stop finding technicalities to get out of sharing our faith. It's time to stop finding and making excuses and technicalities. Well, I mean, yeah, technically, uh, I don't need to point us to go be the neighbor like the Good Samaritans being here. I think that's intuitive. Jesus knew that. The expert knew this. I think what we need, we, we know what we need to be doing. Isn't that correct? We know this already. But the reality is, I think I need to call us away from doing what the expert does. That is making excuses to shut our mouth. To say at some point, my faith is good for me and, and, and I feel comfortable. Even though I'm being stretched, I don't want that to, to get in the way of other people's lives, Right? And we've got a solid list of excuses, don't we? We can get really creative sometimes. I don't really know how to share my faith, right? I, I, I don't really know how. Yes, you do. Jesus has changed your life, has he not? You have your story. Your story is all that he, he's given to you right now. Great, go share your story. That's all he's asked of the disciples. That's all he's asked of, you know, many people who say, I'm going to follow you. Can I come with you? No, just go tell the story of how he saved you to other people. (gasps) I'm not trained enough. I didn't take the classes. I don't know the verses. Stop. You have your story. That's enough to begin with. You know, listen, that's not my job, Pastor Jimmy. That's what we pay you for. You sing songs, dress up like people, and we'll, we'll bring people to you to share Jesus. Why? They don't care what I have to say. They know you. My friends are going to care what I have to say. My friends could, or your friends could care less what I have to say. Actually, it's probably detrimental. Let me bring my pastor to tell you about Jesus. Oh, because he's influenced your life that much, huh? Thanks. No, you do it. This is not my job. This is not Pastor Will's job. If you're in youth group, I'll bring him to youth group. Will will tell him about Jesus. That would be robbing you of the joy of leading your friends to Jesus. I'm not going to do that. My job, Will's job, the staff's job, is to train and equip the church to do the good works that Christ has prepared in advance for us to do, not to do them for you. I don't work for you. I work with you. I love you. But this is yours just as much as it's mine. It's not my job. It's our job. You know what? I'm just too busy, though. You don't know what my schedule looks like. The kids' sports just started up. My school schedule is crazy. And now I'm, I'm going to school and I'm working at the same time. And I'm trying to manage both of these things. And, and then, you know what? I'm, I'm really wrestling right now because life is hard in my home and there's this. And I don't have time. Really? You don't have time? I think we all have time. We're with people all the time. Brett told us last week, we don't need to sow someone else's field. Just pay attention to where you are. Look at the people around you. You know, I I can't share my faith, though. I I can't tell someone about Jesus. They're going to reject me. It's going to ruin our relationship. 
So it's better that I don't compromise the relationship so I won't bring Jesus up at all because that'll make it weird. I've made this excuse. It's a horrible excuse because most of the time people don't reject you. They, they can reject Jesus and not reject you. That's okay. They can reject Jesus and not reject you. That's okay. And then we'll worry. You know what? Okay, I see that. What if I don't have the right answer? They're a smart person. We live in a very educated society here. They're going to ask questions that I don't have answers to. I mean, what if they start to ask me about, and you fill in the question that you're most scared to answer? What if they do this? I, I got to be ready to answer that question. If you are waiting till you are ready to answer every question, you will never share your faith, ever. Because you will never have an answer to every question, and your answer to half the questions you answer now will be different in 10 years. Because hopefully your faith is growing. Your knowledge in Christ is growing. Stop using a lack of education or a fear of not having the right answers as an excuse, as a technicality, to get out of sharing your faith. Can I tell you the best response that I have as a pastor? I'm going to give you some pastor wisdom here. You ready? Pastor Jimmy, what do you think about this thing? And I'm like, you know, that's a great question. I have no idea. I have no idea is a valid answer. I'm not that smart. I don't know everything. But I'd be willing to research that a little more. That's a great question. And, and would you be willing to look at it with me? You see, it, it, we can make the excuse, I don't have the time. If they're asking a question, we get to help them. The worst one, though, is the one that we slowly slip into where we start to get to the idea that it's so personal that I don't want to impose this on other people. And it just doesn't seem that important with all that they have going on in life right now. I don't want to put this weight on them. If you have dedicated your life to following Jesus and committed yourself to his teachings, this is about life and death. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And if we truly say we follow him and we believe what he says, then that means that life and death, eternity, the very thing the expert is asking about is in the balance for every single one of us, including the people that we're saying, I don't want to burden them. You don't want to burden them? You should be burdened for them. It doesn't mean that you take Jesus and just, you need this, or, you know, get out of hell free card. That is not what this is about, but the hope that Christ gives to us is the very thing our friends and our family need, and we're terrified because we don't want to rock the ship. We don't want to disrupt things. I don't want to put more on them. It is time to stop making excuses. It's just time to stop it. It's time to stop. Well, technically, I mean, I mean, who, who is it that I have to share? If, if they don't believe it, I'm okay because it's kind of okay for everybody to believe what they want. Not if you believe what Jesus says. If you believe what Jesus says, there's only one way to the Father, and it is through him. And this is an imperative to go share the gospel. Can I give you the freedom to mess things up sometimes? Don't be a jerk about sharing Jesus, but, but love people. Be the neighbor. Be the neighbor who shows mercy. Be the neighbor who shows love, not the one who technically, I, I'm too busy to come and help you. You know what? I have too much going on. I know that you're in pain, so I, I, I can't show up right now. There's too much. We have so over-busied our lives that that is our number one excuse. We can't love people because we're too stinking busy. 
I wish I could be like Mr. Rogers who stopped when someone saw him on the road and he would listen to that kid or listen to that parent. My favorite story is he, he responded to a dad who wrote to him because his, friend, his son asked him if Mr. Rogers ever pooped. And the dad talks about the letter, and can I tell you the best thing? Is Mr. Rogers responds to him with, thanks for being a dad who keeps conversations like this going with your son. That you didn't shut him down, that you listen to him and you see him, and you can affirm him that, yes, this is a normal bodily action, and there is no bathroom on set right now, but I have one offset that we use. And then he went and put an extra door into his set so that he could at least mention it because a kid was concerned about it. What is love? Love is listening to the people who are in need around you, who have questions around you. Here the expert asked a question. Jesus didn't force things on him. Instead, he did what I believe that we all should do. Because love is intentional, you and I are going to have to be intentional. And giving you, instead of giving you like 10, 15 tips, here's what I want you to do. This is all I'm going to ask you to do this week. You ready? Ask the second question. Follow what Jesus did. Ask the second question. Just ask the second question. The expert says, what must I do? And Jesus says, I don't know, what's the law say? What, how do you read it? All right, who's my neighbor? And Jesus' second question, who was the neighbor? Right? There's a conversation that's happening. You can ask a first question of someone, how you doing? I'm fine, that's polite. That's a good thing, that's cordial. We do that, isn't it? The second question is intentional. The second question shows care. The second question says, I see you. The second question matters. You know, you can ask this and practice with everybody. Hey, how was your day? Oh, I was busy. Oh, me too. Do you ever have those conversations? The answer is no, because that's not a conversation. That's a statement. How's your day? My day was busy. Wow, I know that. What do you have going on today that's been so busy? It was tiring. What, what's been draining you today? Today's been good. That, that's nice. What's, what's been good about today? You know, t- today's been tough. It's been a tough day. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Is there anything that I can do to help you? Is there any way that I could be praying for you today? This is not rocket science, Crossbridge. This is care. You could do this with someone who's checking you out at ShopRite or Acme. You could do this when your kids come home from school. You could do this with your spouse when they come home from work. You can do this with your family. You could do this at your lunch table. You could do this by the locker. This is not hard. You can do it with the person who's in the cubicle next to you that looks fried. How are you? I'm fried. Oh, sorry. What can I do? It's a second question. The other thing you could simply do is there's invite cards that are on your chairs. If we believe that life and death are what this is all about, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about Jesus? That's a weird question, isn't it? Do you have to hate them as much as the Jewish expert hated the Samaritans that he wouldn't even say his name? Because if you hate someone that much, this is not following the way of Jesus. It's just not. But can you look at the people around you and it's like, man, maybe it... Crossbridge on a Sunday morning is the easy invite. Maybe for youth group, that invite tonight to youth group, you can send a text, do you want to come with me? You could do it you know, now. It's all we're asking. Because it's not my job. It's our job, isn't it? And so, as we approach the communion table today, I want to relook and say there's two similar questions. Won't you be my neighbor? Versus who is my neighbor? 
Which one are you asking? Are you, are you in a place of inviting people and wanting to live life with them and love them? Or answer honestly, are you finding yourself as someone who's got a book of great excuses and there's always another one you could turn to? In this series, I really hope that we're going to challenge your way of looking at sharing your faith, what it means to live out with Jesus. Because I'd love for us to go from what I know some of us say when we look at people and say, you won't be my neighbor. You won't be my neighbor. And I would love for us to be a church who says, won't you be my neighbor? When is the last time you invited someone to join you here? When's the last time you shared your faith with someone? If you can't think of a time, have you made this so much about you that you've missed the call to go and love? Have you asked the question that the expert asks, what gets me out of this because it's uncomfortable? Welcome, welcome. It is sometimes. It doesn't have to be. We're called to love and show mercy. We're going to have to be with people to do that. Jesus demonstrated this as clearly as he could when he said, won't you be my neighbor? And he opened his arms on a cross to us and said, all that sin, all the mistakes that you make, all the things that separate you from, from God, I'll cover that because I will give all for you. And I, I need to ask for forgiveness for times I just haven't shared and made excuses. Maybe you do too. I'm grateful that as we celebrate communion, we can remember Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is about Jesus, not about us, amen. Oh, I need that today. Would you stand with me as we prepare to take communion? Holy Spirit, we invite you to search our hearts to help us understand and to cast out fear of sharing our faith, but to truly obey your teachings that says, now go and live this way. Would our mouths be overflowing with the water of life? because we are so filled with your spirit. Would you help us understand, even in our mind right now, a picture of who is our neighbor that we may intentionally say, I've forgotten and push that person aside. I need to be intentional there. Thank you, Jesus.